we demand an answer. Did you know that there are over 300 prophecies speaking of Jesus in the Old Testament? The events of his life were told by the prophets over a span of 1,500 years. And even though he was born 2,000 years ago, there is no person who has changed the history of our world more than Jesus. That is why it is the most important question, not if Jesus was, but who Jesus is. And what's critical is how you answer that question. And that is what we're going to unpack this morning, because how you unpack and how you answer that question will reflect who you and I really are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and for your mercy that you've given us this morning to be together, worshiping you. It has been good to be in your house. And now, Lord, I pray that as we look to your word that you would speak to us. Lord, you have something to say to every one of us who is here today. And my prayer is that you will transform me. My prayer is that you will transform every brother and sister that is in this building today. And you will make us more into the image of your son, our Savior, Jesus. And we pray this in his mighty and powerful name. Amen. Well, in sports, coaches and the media often refer to it as the turning point. In fact, one of the sports networks that we have here in Canada calls it the TSN turning point. That critical play that changes the course of a game or perhaps even a season for a team. If you followed the Raptors last season, there was no bigger turning point than the buzzer beater that Kawhi hit in Game 7 against Philadelphia in the Eastern Conference semifinals. In literature or film, it is referred to as the climax, a point of highest tension that is also usually the most revealing part of a story. I know The Lion King is showing in theaters around. In fact, my kids, some of my kids went and watched it this week and having conversations with you, I know some of you have watched it. And you remember in The Lion King when Simba and Scar had their epic battle and Simba takes control of the situation and proves that he should be the king of the pride. Turning points. Climaxes. Well, today as we near the end of our summer journey through the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves at the turning point in the Gospel of Mark, where everything begins to change for his disciples. Up until now, they have been on the go with Jesus traveling around from town to town, going back and cross across the lake. I don't know if you've been noticing that as we've read. Those guys did a lot of rowing. They went back and forth across the lake. They had seen him have compassion on crowds. They had watched him heal many who were sick, release those who were demon-possessed, and on two separate occasions miraculously feed thousands of people, all the while teaching the people and the disciples many things. But today we will notice in chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, that that rapid pace slows down to an almost deliberate march as Jesus leads his disciples on the way. And literally smack in the middle of his gospel, Jesus demands of his disciples their answer to the most critical question in history. Who is Jesus? So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 8? 
And we will read together beginning in verse 27 through to verse 33, the turning point. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the word of the Lord. And what we're going to do together this morning is I want to highlight four different aspects of this passage of Scripture, unpack them a little bit, and make some application points. And those four areas are, first of all, the significance of the specific setting where Jesus asked them two critical questions to which there is only one correct answer that leads to the turning point. So let's get started. This specific setting, Caesarea Philippi, was a town 40 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee at the source of the Jordan River. It was actually the furthest point north that Jesus took his disciples. It was predominantly non-Jewish, a city of Greek-Roman culture, known for its worship of foreign gods like Baal. You will remember that, the Canaanite deity. It was also famous for its cultic associations with the Greek god Pan, the god of nature you may have seen in books, the half-man, half-goat figure that was often depicted playing a flute. The area was ruled by Herod, the great son Philip, who was the one who actually renamed the city, and he built a white marble temple to the godhead of Caesar, the Roman Empire, the ruler of the world, who was also regarded as a god. So when Jesus traveled through this area with his disciples that we read in verse 27, you have to understand the setting. The ancient religion of Palestine was in the air. Memories of Baal were clustered around. And remnants of the gods of classical Greece were looming over the city. And it was in this setting, a worship center of cults and false religions, that Jesus chooses as the backdrop to ask his disciples to critical questions that he demanded an answer for. Two critical questions he asks in verse 27 to 29. The first question he asks is actually a general question. Who do people say I am? Jesus was checking the polls. Here is one in trending to see what people are thinking. What are they saying about him? He knows everything. So we know he was not asking because he did not know who he was or because he somehow depended on people's opinion for who he knew he was. He was using this question, as we read, as a conversation starter to begin a deeper dialogue that he was about to have with his disciples that they were not aware of. So who do people say I am? And in verse 28, they replied, some say John the Baptist. This was Herod's speculation of who he was. Flip back with me to chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. 
This is Herod's response after Jesus had sent the disciples out to do some ministry on their own. And they had healed people and released people from demons. Listen to what it says in verse 14. King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. and That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. Key verse. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Some say you're John the Baptist. That was Herod's speculation. And obviously he had a great influence on many people's opinion of who Jesus was. Others said he was Elijah. You will remember Elijah. The prophet and miracle worker who defended the worship of God over that of the Canaanite deity of Baal. Most well known for his challenge to 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah to a cook-off on Mount Carmel. And to prove who really is God. And as I read that this week, I said to my wife last night, you know what? That was actually the original Fire Up the Grill outreach event. (laughs) We do not take credit for that name. That's Jesus' work. Elijah was also only one of two people, Enoch being the other, who were taken up to heaven without dying. And Jewish expectation was that Elijah will return before the Messiah comes. Some say John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Interesting note, both John and Elijah were national reformers who stood up to the corrupt rulers of their day. And so seeing Jesus as a John the Baptist or as Elijah continued to prove the crowd's ongoing hope for their Messiah to be a political Messiah, one who would overthrow the corrupt Roman powers oppressing them. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, and still others thought he was one of the prophets, one who was resuming the suspended line of Old Testament prophets. As misguided as their answers were, their response does show one thing. Many people in the crowd that followed Jesus recognized he was one through whom God was working. John the Baptist, Elijah, or a prophet. They at least recognized that he was one through whom God was working in contrast to the rejection of the Jewish leaders. As I was going through my notes last night, I added this question. I wonder how we would answer if Jesus was to ask us today, who do people in your community say I am? That's a sobering thought. Because I wonder if we would even know what they think. Have I even spent enough time with people in my circle of influence in our community to even know what they think about my Savior? Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? You see, what people thought mattered to Jesus. He knew what was coming ahead of him on the road he was traveling with his disciples to Jerusalem. Opposition against him was gathering momentum. And even though he had lived and taught and moved among the people and performed miracles on their behalf, if they had not caught a glimpse of his divinity, who he really was, then all his work was for nothing. Remember, there is only one way 
that he could leave a message behind after he was gone, and that was if it was written on people's hearts. We learned that last week. That's why he came. He came to usher in the kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of God in people's hearts. So it was important for Jesus to know, who do people say I am? So with this burden on his mind, Jesus puts everything on the line, and he shifts from asking a general question about who do people say I am, and he makes it really personal. I don't know about you, but one of my biggest fears in school was when a teacher would throw out a question to the class, a general question to the class, and then he or she would look around, and then the odd time, they would lock eyes with you and go, Troy, what do you think? I hated that. That was my biggest fear. That's why I have no nails. I still bite my nails. Because I lived in fear. Well, I know the right answer. These people might think I'm smart, but I might be able to just, I don't know. That was a fear I lived with. And Jesus turned his questioning from a general question to a very personal question. He demanded an answer from those closest to him. The 12 that have left the crowd and were following him, walking with him closely. You see, it was fine for the disciples to understand who people thought he was. And it's fine for us to know in our community who people think Jesus is. But ultimately what matters to Jesus is what you and I believe personally. So he says to them, what about you? Who do you say I am? Again, another tip I picked up in terms of how to reach our community. It is good that we must have outreach events that bring in crowds to hear the good news about Jesus. But I was burdened as I read this week as I was studying. We must never forget that crowds are made up of individuals. Crowds are made up of individuals, so we must continue to work hard. I must continue to work hard with my neighbors, getting to know those in my circle of influences outside of church so we can learn who they believe Jesus is. Because, brothers and sisters, this is a question that the disciples had actually asked themselves before. Do you remember back in chapter 4, after Jesus calmed the first storm that they had endured together across the lake? They looked at each other and said, who is this? Even the winds and the wave obey him. It is a critical question that each of us have to ask ourselves. Because we must all answer it. And how we answer it will make all the difference in identifying who we are. We either belong to the crowd that knows about Jesus, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, I don't know, maybe another prophet. How we answer it will reveal if we belong to the crowd that knows about Jesus or if we are someone who is known by Jesus, a follower of him. And being known by Jesus is the most important thing. And that's my prayer this morning. For anyone who's here this morning, if you do not know Jesus in a personal way, I pray that the Holy Spirit, through his word this morning, Jesus will reveal himself to you through his word, and you will leave this place not knowing about Jesus, but be known by Jesus. Because that's what really matters. According to Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, listen to the words of Jesus. Many will say to me on that day, that's judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. That's fascinating. This is people, a crowd before Jesus. They're not just saying we knew about you. They're actually saying we acted like people who knew about you. But listen to what he says. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Scariest words in the Bible. I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. So who is Jesus? He is not just another god amongst other gods like Baal or Pan. He is the one and only true God. Declared in Isaiah 45 verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God, capital G. So then what is the only correct answer if you're not John the Baptist or Elijah or another prophet? I found it interesting when I read, when Jesus asked them at the end of verse 27, who do people say I am? The next word says they replied. They meaning the disciples. More than one answered. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But when Jesus got personal, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Only one person answered. Peter answered. He jumped at the opportunity to speak up. Now, you'll know who Peter was. We've all had a Peter in our lives at some time. Sitting in a class, that annoying classmate who just always has to shout out the answer before anybody else. I was never that person. Well, Peter was that guy. So he blurts out on behalf of the group, you're the Messiah. Maybe in your translations it might say you are the Christ. You see, the word Messiah and the word Christ actually mean the same thing. They both mean the anointed one. The word Messiah is Hebrew. The word Christ is Greek for the same thing, the anointed one. So Peter was saying you are the anointed one. And a king could only be made a king if they were anointed. And the Messiah, the Christ, who Peter had just declared, was God's anointed king. Jesus confirmed this when he got up to speak in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And he was handed the scroll of Isaiah to read. And how ironic. This is what he read that day in the synagogue. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness for the prisoners. Jesus was God's anointed one. And so confidently and without any hesitation, Peter jumps up and affirms what they believe Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. And what is amazing is that Peter and his disciples came to understand this while in Caesarea Philippi. In that backdrop of associations with cults, false religions. They came to realize that a homeless Galilean carpenter who has become this wandering teacher from Nazareth with the power to do miracles is the Messiah. 
They knew Jesus was more than simply John the Baptist raised to life or Elijah returned or just another prophet. But how was Peter so convinced of his answer? To be able to stand up and to answer on behalf of the group, you are the Messiah. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. There we will read how Peter became so convinced of this. Matthew chapter 16, recording the same event that Mark is talking about, that we're talking about this morning. In verse 15, Jesus says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Listen to Jesus' reply. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. This was not revealed to you by humans, but by my Father in heaven. How is it that Peter was able to stand up so confidently and declare, you are the Messiah? By God's grace. And by God's grace alone was he able to stand up that day and give the only correct answer. In the midst of that setting, not fully understanding exactly who Jesus was completely yet, as we will learn later. Because at this point, Jesus had never actually plainly declared to his disciples fully his identity. Up until now, his messianic claims had always been presented in subtle ways. Through Old Testament prophecies and combined with his miraculous works that affirmed them. And yet here we see God graciously open Peter's eyes and reveal to him who Jesus really is. His mind and his heart were open to this deeper knowledge of Christ. And it took a leap of faith for Peter to declare it. He was not merely expressing some academic opinion of who Jesus was. This was Peter's confession of personal faith, but it required and was only made possible by divine intervention. This has been revealed to you by my Father. And Peter's story is how every person moves from simply being part of the crowd that knows about Jesus to being known by Jesus as a follower. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Just as Liz and Chris played that beautiful song, this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Born of the Spirit, washed in his blood. So what is the only correct answer? Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah, the Christ the anointed one. And knowing who he is personally enables you to move from the crowd to being a follower. From knowing about Jesus to being known by Christ. Peter declares you are the Messiah. And then all of a sudden we have this strange verse, verse 30. No sooner had Peter declared the only correct answer and we see Jesus warning them to tell no one about him. Bizarre. They were accurate in identifying who he is, but knowing who he is was only the first step in learning to be a follower of his. He had more to clarify for them, and that is why he is serious about his warning. In fact, the verb that Mark uses here when it says Jesus warned them 
correctly translated, actually means to rebuke. Jesus rebuked them. The same verb that Jesus used to rebuke demons to be silent that we've read of earlier in Mark. You see, their understanding of what Messiah meant was not fully informed and it still needed to be developed. In order for them to proclaim Jesus as Messiah at this point would have only further confused the people in Jesus' day who thought that the Messiah was a political military deliverer. And the potential fallout would be that the Jewish people, desperate to rid themselves of Roman oppression, would rush to make Jesus king by force. That is why he told them, do not tell anyone about me. Because they knew who he was, but they didn't fully understand what that meant at that point. I don't believe it's any coincidence that we read just prior to this event, in verses 22 to 26 of chapter 8, we read an account of how Jesus healed a blind man in Bethesda. And what is interesting is how he heals the blind man. Because his sight was not fully restored all at once. If you read there, you'll see that Jesus spit on the blind man's eyes. And then he laid his hands on him and asked him if he sees anything. This was, as I read this, this was like the first optometrist appointment. You know when you go and they put that thing over your eyes and they, what do you see now? What do you see now? Is this clearer? This is exactly what's happening. Jesus spits on the blind man's eyes, lays his hands on him, and then asks him, do you see anything? And the blind man answers, yes, I see men, but they are walking like trees. What does that tell you? His vision is still blurry. Did Jesus not have the power to completely heal this man at one time? Of course he did. But how he healed this blind man of his physical sight was foreshadowing how he was going to open the spiritual eyes of his disciples. It would happen in stages. It wasn't just all going to happen at once. And Jesus did later, just in case you're wondering, he did lay his hands on the blind man again. And he began to see everything clearly. The first layer of scales had been removed from the disciples' eyes to see who Jesus was. He is the Messiah, the Christ. He's the anointed one. But their vision of what that would look like was still blurry. And so in verse 31, Jesus begins to make things clear for them. Now I have a confession to make. This may change your image of me as this tough outdoorsman. But if there's not any good sports on TV, there's usually much not else good on any other channel anyway, you will find me the odd time watching HGTV. <laughs> I know. Thank you, Betty. Thank you. I know that must surprise you. And my favorite show is The Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines. See, I even know their names, right? But I love that show because most of the places they do, it's like in Waco, Texas, and so there's kind of a country outdoorsy theme to their decor, which I like. In fact, I was watching last week with my daughter and my wife was there, and I said, hey, how about this section of wall right behind the TV? I've got a bunch of barn board from the farm. How do we fill that up with barn board? Well, they're still thinking about it. <laughs> the fixer up with, with uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines. But what I love about the show is at the end, when they roll back the big canvas to reveal this transformation in the house, and then you get to watch the people's response. 
That's awesome. One quick note before we get back to our message. Children, trust me, listen to me. Next Mother's Day, buy your mother Joanna Gaines' cookbook. It's called A Collective of Recipes for Gathering. It's the Mother's Day gift that will give back to you over and over. I have not bought it for my wife because wives don't want to receive gifts from their husbands on Mother's Day. But I was down in the States and my niece has bought it for my sister. And let me tell you, it's worth the investment. So next Mother's Day, Joanna Gaines' cookbook, a collective of recipes for gathering. It will pay off good dividends. Okay? So here we are in verse 31. And Jesus is getting ready to roll back the canvas and to reveal the crucial turning point for his disciples. Read it with me. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three days rise again. You see how many times the word must is in that verse? Jesus shifts their focus from who he is and makes the crucial turning point of Mark's gospel. He wants them to now understand what he came to do. Yes, he is the awaited Messiah, as you have accurately said, Peter. But his mission will be accomplished in a way they never expected. It would be accomplished through suffering. He unfolds his mission to them, and it says plainly. Just as Jesus said in Matthew, I noticed that this week. He will tell those who said, Lord, Lord. He will tell them plainly. Here it says Jesus unfolded his mission to them plainly. He was not using parables this time. He was not being subtle with them. He was telling them plainly. It must be carried out, my mission, through suffering. As had been prophesied in the book of Isaiah, I'd encourage you when you go home, read Isaiah chapter 53. It must be accomplished through suffering. He must die and he must rise again. As one writer put it, the festive circuit through Galilee was about to take a turn towards a somber procession to Jerusalem. His suffering and death was a must because of two facts, our sin and God's love. That is why his messianic mission cannot be understood apart from the cross, which the disciples at this point did not yet understand. But Jesus is beginning to roll back the canvas and to reveal so they would understand. Those of us on this side of the story, we get it. We get it that Jesus came to suffer. But you have to put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples. And what had they all the time been thinking and waiting for? A Messiah who was going to come, powerful, political, ruler. And all of a sudden Jesus says, I am the Messiah. But not as you expected. This is why Peter took him aside. Imagine, and began to rebuke Jesus. Tried to silence Jesus. It's because what Jesus revealed to them was a total shock. They were expecting and hoping that he was a national, political Messiah. All their lives they have thought of the Messiah in terms of a superhuman who's going to interrupt history and he's going to vindicate God's people by destroying all their enemies. And now what Jesus is presenting to them, 
didn't match at all what they had envisioned or what they had been waiting for. It made no sense. I like as one author put it, it would be as shocking this fall as a candidate running to be prime minister for Canada and announcing towards the end of his campaign, by the way, I'm going to go to Ottawa, I'm going to be rejected and executed. You would be just as shocked if you heard that on the CTV news at 6 o'clock as Peter was that day when Jesus explained to him that he was going to have to suffer. That's unthinkable. It's unthinkable for them to understand their Messiah suffering. Why would anyone with Jesus' amazing power to silence the sea, to silence unclean spirits, to heal the sick, to feed thousands, not only that, but to be able to have authority to forgive sins on earth and to determine what is permissible on the Sabbath, why would that person ever have to suffer on earth? That's impossible. And although Peter's rebuke revealed his deep love for Jesus, it also revealed the disciples' ignorance about the nature of Jesus' messiahship. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians where Paul said that the cross would be foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews? Well, here we see Peter, one of the first to stumble over the offense of a suffering messiah. This was the crucial turning point. This is why there was two critical questions asked with only one correct answer in a very significant setting when Jesus asked them. As difficult as it was for Jesus, he was fully aware of the suffering he would face. He was aware of the calling on his life and he would answer the call by God's power. That is why he rebuked Peter in such a direct manner. But note this point. It's, it's really interesting He turns back and looks at his disciples, but only rebukes Peter. As if to say, Peter, you're going to receive the rebuking, but I know what the other 11 are also thinking. That's why he rebuked Peter in such a direct manner because Peter was proposing something. No, Messiah, you will not suffer. No, 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 you must not suffer. That's not what a a Messiah does. Jesus knew that what Peter was proposing was something contrary to God's word and his will. Therefore, Jesus interpreted his suggestion as being the thoughts of Satan, even if they were coming from the lips of one of his disciples. They did not want to accept Christ's prediction of suffering as part of his mission. But Jesus' quick response when he turned to the disciples and began to rebuke Peter, his quick response highlights that Jesus fully understood that suffering was going to be at the center of his mission for you and for me. Jesus knew there was a satanic purpose in discouraging him from his ministry on the cross, and he would not allow that purpose to succeed. And that is why until they fully understood what it meant that Jesus is the Messiah... And what that actually meant, they were not permitted to tell anyone about him. Why? Because they had in mind the concerns, not the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. How many times as followers of Jesus are we guilty of that? We do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely our own human concerns. 
They needed to understand and appreciate not only who he is, but what his mission was in coming. And only then, and this is why Jesus had that crucial turning point, only then would they be ready to explain to others the good news about who Jesus is and what his role was in the kingdom of God. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, whom God sent to suffer and save his people through his death and resurrection. Who is Jesus? He is a sacrifice of atonement. Who is Jesus? He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through him. Who is Jesus? He is Savior. That is why he was given the name Jesus, because he would come to save his people from their sins. They wanted to be rescued from Roman oppression when what they really needed and what every one of us in this room this morning needs is to be rescued from our sins. Knowing about Jesus is not enough. Knowing who he is personally is a gift. And knowing his mission is critical to our effectiveness. So, the video at the start of the sermon said, what is your answer? What is your answer? People will demand it of you. Christ will demand it of you. And how you answer will reflect who you are and who I am. We are either part of the crowd who simply knows about Jesus or we are a follower known by Jesus and becoming a disciple maker. As our worship team comes up to lead us in our final song, I want to ask all of us to please bow your heads, close your eyes, because my prayer for today is that we would be transformed transformed from either lost, knowing about Jesus, to becoming known by Jesus. Transformed from simply being a follower who is known by Jesus to maturing as a disciple maker. Thankful for the gift, now understanding the responsibility that comes with that gift. And so I'd ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. Because it would be an absolute waste of my time this morning to share the truth about who Jesus is and not give you the opportunity to confess for yourself. Are you part of the crowd that simply knows about him? Or are you known, 100% you confident, you are known by him? Perhaps you are here this morning and you are part of the crowd, and you know a lot about Jesus. You even hang around with people who are known by Jesus. But maybe God, through his word this morning, through the power of his Holy Spirit, has pricked your heart to realize, wow, I think I'm just part of the crowd. I honestly don't know if I'm known personally by Jesus through a personal relationship. Today, God, just like he did with Peter that day, God has been gracious to you. He's giving you the health and the strength and the breath in your lungs to be here this morning and for him to reveal to you who Jesus 
is. And the Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead three days later, you will be saved. You will be rescued from ever having to hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. And I want to pray for you this morning because this is the most critical question you will ever answer in your life. And God is giving you the grace today to allow you the opportunity to respond. And so as we close in prayer with every eye closed, every head bowed, if you would like me to pray for you and say, Pastor, I think I'm just one of the crowd. I know about Jesus, but I want to personally be known by him. I want to confess today that he is the Messiah and that he came to suffer, to die, and to rise again so that I can be forgiven. If that is you this morning, would you just slip up your hand so that I can see it? I want to pray for you this morning that you will move from being in the crowd to becoming a follower. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for giving us the opportunity again Thank you, God, for your grace this morning to be taught through your word who Jesus is. Not just who he is, but what his mission was. And Father, for those who have raised their hands this morning, I thank you for giving them the opportunity today. And I pray that they would, by your grace and through faith that you place in their hearts, believe and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And that you would move them from being in the crowd to being known by you, a follower. Father, thank you for your grace in their lives today. And Father, for the rest of us here, thank you for allowing us to be known by you, by your grace. Father, would you help us to understand in a much deeper way how critical your mission was so that we will not just be followers of you, but we will be effective disciple makers. And so as we end our service this morning, through our worship, once again, we want to confess that you are Messiah. You are the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus, who came to save us from our sins. Amen. And the only reason we can say that and sing about that is because of his grace. His grace. What we have come to understand about Jesus and to be known by him is a gift. Treasure that gift. But don't keep it to yourself. Regift it. Regift it. We know there's a day coming when the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But until then, the Bible also says always Be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you for the reason to the hope that you have. What is yours? I trust God has helped you and equipped you this morning to know how you will answer. Have a great week. We love you. Please get excited about what's coming up for the fall. Check out the website. Next week you'll see some things in the lobby. We serve him together as a community, not just as individuals. Amen? May God bless you and have a great day.